If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're in the book of Revelation today. We will be opening up to the first chapter. We'll read at the end of that chapter and then get into chapter two uh, today. Uh, what, a awesome, uh, what an awesome time of worship we've had this morning. Uh, I love singing songs about Jesus. Jesus is indeed our Messiah. He is our Savior. But in light of that, who are we? In light of who Jesus is and what he has done, clearly that has impacted us. That's why you're here today, or at least you're here because you're curious about Jesus. You've heard about Jesus. Uh, but what does that mean about us? And what does that make us? You know, Jesus says pretty, tells us pretty clearly in his word uh, what that says and what that does for us, that it makes us his own, that because of his work on the cross, we are the church, we are his bride, we have been called his body, we are the church, the, the, the commissioned for, to, to, the, to the gospel, to the whole world. Um, you know, Jesus defined the church on several different occasions and three things that we often talk about a lot and we reiterate again and again uh, that Jesus, uh, ways that Jesus defined the church and, 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 and uh, characterized the church. Um, he said, first off, he said, we are refuge, that we are meant to be a refuge for the world, an assembly that welcomes everybody, that bids all who are weary and burdened to come as you are. And doesn't just invite people, but just goes and invests in people and welcomes people and, you know, compels people to find the refuge and rest that we have found, to come to a place where no one is judged, everyone is loved. Jesus also said the church was the salt of the earth. As a preservative, salt long before refrigeration, salt was used to keep meat from spoiling, to keep meat from rotting. And likewise, Jesus says the church is when it's hitting on all cylinders. It keeps humanity from moral decay. It keeps our world from falling into darkness. Speaking of which, Jesus says, we are the light of the world. God has placed his light in our midst. Jesus Christ has given us his spirit and made us sons and daughters of God. He is with us, he is for us, and we are his. That's who he says the church is, and we have a purpose. We're on mission to bring refuge that we've come to know to the whole world. We're called to be the salt of our world. We're called to shine our light to and on our world. We are conduits from heaven, connected to the source of light. We are called to reflect that light far and wide. But the funny thing that happens, though, and I think we can find day-to-day -day similarities to this, God has called us his church. He's gathered us together in local communities. He's given us his word. He's put in place leadership. He's organized our services and our missions and our fellowship and all that doing church entails. He's helped us get all that together. He's given us an outline of what we should do and who we should be. And then it's almost as if once we get in our rhythm and some of us, and we've been doing this for so long and places have been doing this for so long, we find our footing. And it's almost like we say to God, God, I've got this, we can take it from here. And it's not that we don't turn to him, and of course we worship him, but in terms of really leaning into him and trusting and turning and, and taking notes from him, it seems like that becomes something less and less that we do as the church. You know, God has been so good to us and continues to be good to us, but sometimes our connection gets a bit loose, and yet not enough for us to notice. The power might flicker every once in a while, but not enough to halt operations or hinder what we've got going on. 
Sometimes as we go through the motions, we're trying to keep everything, uh, you know, going, and we've got a, a busy life outside of here, of course. Uh, we can forget that all this belongs to him. Everything exists because of him, and for him, we exist, and we persist for his glory and by his mercy. As a result, we can go about doing what we do. And sometimes it almost seems like we can get by without really acknowledging or talking to him about it. And unless we have some sort of designated time for evaluation, checking ourselves in with what God intends, we might just lose sight of who we are and what we've been called to do. All the while, there's a world out there around us. It's not neutral. The world is not passive towards us. In fact, in many ways, it sets itself against us. And it's not working directly against us. It, it definitely isn't working for us. Jesus warned his following in its infant state that it must always check its connection as the light of the world. It must never allow that light to go out. It must never allow that light to be covered up. It must always remain in firm connection to the source. Now, now this doesn't happen intentionally most of the time. It happens subtly, but nonetheless, it happens Jesus warned that this light that he's put in our midst, that this lamp he set in our midst, he warned that this light that he set in the midst of us must continue to shine bright, lest those inside get used to the dark and lest those outside remain lost without any light. Now that is a pretty powerful message in and of itself. We could just pray and go home and think about that, that unless this light shines bright, unless we stay connected to the source, we may get used to the dark, and Lord knows what that might entail, and those outside might not ever see the light and might not find their way to God as we have been so blessed to do. Now, we just began a study in the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the New Testament, the last book of the Bible. And what we've discovered right out of the gate is that it's meant to be this lasting, timeless message of evaluation and accountability for the local church, for every local church, for every church of every generation. That is the purpose of this book. It forever holds up God's will for his church against the drift of the world, encouraging us and equipping us to function under pressure. It wrestles with and does not shy away from the reality that has been, the reality that is and will always be this tension between the church and the world. God gave John the book of Revelation to address the church as it was just beginning this new age. The Bible's foundation was set. The commission was clear. Go unto the whole world for God's movement to grow and spread to the ends of the earth, working towards his kingdom. It was clear what the mission was. The foundation was firm and established. And this age was just beginning. Revelation is honest about the pressure and the trials that we will face during this age. It's written as if to pose questions uh, that hold us accountable, that evaluate where we are and what we are doing and how we are doing in our faith. It asks the questions, will our faithfulness persist? Will we endure despite the pressure that we face? Will we continue to lift up Jesus as Lord and as King when the world says there are other lords and other kings? Will we honor him and serve him no matter what until kingdom comes? It asks the question, what will we do with the light that Jesus has put in our midst? 
What will we do with the source he's connected us to? With the power, with the privilege we've been given. This book is often misunderstood as a book that only addresses the far-flung future. But Jesus makes it clear in chapter 1 that he's addressing the church in every place and in every age that it's ever existed in. I want to pick up in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 because I want us to know, I want us to understand clearly what this book is about before we continue on and answer this question, what will we do with this light that he's put in our midst? Revelation 1.19 is really the anchor verse for this book as it gives us the lens through which we are to read what follows. Revelation 1.19 says, Jesus is telling John, write the things which you have seen, comma, the things which are, comma, and the things which will take place after this. Now, it's tempting to try to divide up the book into the things that are, the things that, or the things that have been, the things that are, the things that will be. But that is not how Revelation is formatted. And we talked about this last week, but I want to make sure that we understand how this book is formatted just so we're all on the same page before we get into what I think God has for us as a church all these years later from this book. Jesus tells John that what he's about to experience is going to reflect the things that have taken place, that are taking place, and will take place. That there's a trifold meaning for everything that John's about to see. As it shows him what the church has went through, what the church is going through, what the church will go through. Now, this is not a new thing for the book of Revelation. This is consistent with how Bible prophecy works in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A cool way to think about it, I call it kaleidoscopic prophecy. Now, I would have put a kaleidoscope video on the screen, but I didn't want any of us to trip out today, and and that messes with my eyes. But we've all looked into a kaleidoscope before, haven't we? And as you kind of turn it around, and as you look into it, the kind of scene begins to change, but it's essentially the same baseline, but there are multiple layers to what you are seeing. And that is how Bible prophecy is from front to back. Now, think of it this way. In the Old Testament, if you read the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, much of the prophecies that they receive and that they write down have multiple layers to them. You can, you can see those prophecies fulfilled when Jesus first came to earth. You can see that there are still things about those prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. You can see that those prophecies were fulfilled when Israel got out of exile and then again when Jesus came and then again in some future age. My point is there's a kaleidoscopic effect of those prophecies. You can see them fulfilled in one way, but you also can see that there's something else that could happen down the road based on that same verse. That's how Bible prophecy works. It's like in the Old Testament when God promised a a deliverer, he sent Moses, but that's also a picture of Jesus, right? When God promised David a son, it's Solomon, but it's also a picture of Jesus. So the Bible's prophecies are often multi-layered. There is no book of the Bible that gives prophecy that is only to be interpreted in one place in one time. There's always multiple layers to it. Now it's tempting because of popular you know, interpretation to push Revelation off into the future. And while it does have something to say about the future, we'll get there. It also has something to say about right here and right now, which I think is most pertinent to us right here 
and right now. Think about when, how, when in the book of Acts, when Jesus is about to commission the church on it, to, to, to start the movement, they think he's starting the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, no, 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 one day I'm going to, but no, I'm starting the church. And again, they were basing that off prophecies that they were interpreting correctly, but they missed the fact that he was actually going to start a church before he started a kingdom. The idea is that every Bible prophecy is understood through this kaleidoscopic filter. Maybe the best example of what I call kaleidoscopic prophecy is the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel gets a vision of the temple grounds being desecrated. Many try to say that that was fulfilled in a single time. But actually, if you study the, the, the history of the Jewish people, that's happened one, two, three times. Again, Daniel sees a vision that can be applied to multiple events in history. And it may yet apply to one to come. But the point of it is... The book of Revelation, like all Bible prophecy, is not just telling us about the future or the past, but it's telling us, as verse 19 teaches us, things that have happened, things that are happening, and things that will happen. So, and this isn't as important for chapter 2 as it will be for down the road. When you open up to chapter 6 and you think, well, this isn't talking to me, it absolutely is. It was talking to John's generation, talking to our generation, and it may yet talk to a future generation. It may yet talk to the final generation. But again, our place, our time here and now, what's important is what does this say to us? So here's, that's, that's how we're studying the book of Revelation. That's why I, I think God gave the book of Revelation. For the church to understand the battle that we face, not that we will face, but that we are facing. But also even, a lot more than that. So all throughout Revelation, we're going to get a sense of the pressure that the church has been under, is under, and will always be under from the world. Now, at our point in history, we can look back 2,000 years at the has-been. And we can look back, we can look around right now at the is. And we can look into the future at the will be. But that's not all that we gather from studying the book of Revelation. Studying Revelation also helps us know that no matter the pressure... We are secure in the palm of God's hands where we find peace and power. So by all means, Revelation says, hey, there's going to be some stuff go down. There's going to be some tension. There's going to be some pressure. There's going to be some, some moments when you wonder, can I endure? Can I remain faithful? And you may be tempted to not remain faithful. That's the reality that we live in that we always have and always will live in until the kingdom comes. But the promise to us from God's word is that in spite of the pressure, we are secure. Look at verse number 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the stars are the angels or the messengers of the churches, the lampstands are the churches. So what does this tell us about the people of God? We are in the palm of God's hand. We may be surrounded by the fire of the world, by the pressure of the world, but we are in the palm of his hand. And what does God's hand tell us? We talked about this. God's hand means that there is peace coming to us. There is power coming to us. Peace and power. Now notice how the church is characterized as a lampstand, as a light, as the light adjacent to Jesus, the lampstands, is, a, is the church. I think the picture here is that each church 
and by extension, each Christian is in the hand of God. We are secure and we are saved and there's nothing that can change that based on our circumstances and surroundings. That is forever settled in God's hands. And what did he say in John? Nobody can pluck you out of his hand. But as the church, we have been commissioned and we are called to cooperate and obey and serve in our call to contribute to the kingdom that God is building. That from Revelation 2 to Revelation 19, the, 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 the short of it is, this is the church's mission on a battlefield that may not be for us, that may definitely be against us. On a battlefield that is pressure cooked, we are going to go through all of it in the hand of God. Will you remain faithful in spite of the pressure, knowing that you are in God's hand and you have peace and power from God? Are you going to cower? Are you going to bail out? Are you going to say, hey, not for me? Or will you endure? Revelation 1.20 says the light, the lampstands are the churches. And of course, we're called the light of the world, which is meant to shine that light as we've already talked about. Therefore, we bear our responsibility to leverage the peace and power that God has given us for our mission. The responsibility involves taking account what he's done for us, who he has made us, and what we are called to do. Our light, our lampstand, will directly reflect our exposure to the source of the light. You hear that? Our light, as in the impact that we have, will reflect our exposure to the light. So every local church will only be as bright as our connection and reliance on Jesus. And that is what the first couple chapters of Revelation is all about, especially chapters 2 and 3 is how tightly connected, how firmly connected, how reliant are we on Jesus because that will impact our brightness. It will impact our reach. So often in the local church, we get established, we get in our routines. Over time, we lose touch with the light. We blur the lines with what's real and artificial light. And Revelation reveals to us what's at risk Revelation is the perfect study for the local church because every generation deals with all that is trying to wedge itself between us and God. It's honest about, about our struggle, about our raw struggle in this world. And likewise, God is honest and clear about what is at stake if we fail to heed his evaluation. Jesus calls on John to address seven churches of the region of Asia Minor, or we talked about last week, the country of Turkey. The region was surrounded by forces that were trying to block the light of heaven, trying to choke out their faithfulness. Jesus only addresses seven, I believe, because again, this helps this picture be symbolic and timeless. Seven is God's complete number used to capture the entirety of something. I believe these seven churches represent the church as a global operation across the seven seas, on the seven continents. These seven churches are a picture of all of our churches. They were real churches, as we'll talk about today, with real issues that needed to be addressed. And these real issues are issues that we continue to deal with all these years later. We find ourselves in all of these seven churches. And today, we're going to look at three of these seven churches. Chapter 2 addresses four, but we're only going to focus on three because they fall in a similar category. We won't miss 
We won't skip out on the second one. We'll get into that one next time. But keep this theme of evaluation in mind. This theme that calls us to be aware of the pressures that we face, not just externally, but internally as well. The pressure that is sort of self-inflicted as we get in our routines of doing church, we run the risk of losing sight. We run the risk of dimming our light. Revelation is going to be is going to deal plenty with the attacks the enemy brings on the church externally, but the first two chapters deal with his attempts to disrupt the church internally, all stemming from this theme of our connection to the light of God. So how reliable is that connection? How secure is that connection? How genuine is the light under which we are operating? Sometimes it's easy to become deceived, and it's only apparent as we move beyond here. It's not that we can begin to cause harm it's just that we fail to accomplish good and that's what is most important to John and Jesus as they're writing this book is what kind of impact are you having on the world a world under pressure but yet the mission is still the same so remember our identity refuge salt and light what are those things what are the nature of those things their purpose is to impact and enhance their surroundings refuge is only as good as what it provides salt and light are meant to enhance the surrounding uh, that they're placed in so what we understand from revelation is that success is only success for the local church is not measured by how good we are but how much good we accomplish and that's what John and Jesus are concerned with. What are we accomplishing for the kingdom? Because the world and all the forces of hell are accomplishing a lot for their kingdom. What are we accomplishing for the kingdom of God? And that's what this first passage is most concerned with. The whole book, but, all, but this first passage especially. As it addresses the church of Ephesus. Read with me or follow with me in Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So we know that's the church, the churches that John is writing to. Jesus says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and aren't, and have found them liars. You have persevered and have been patient, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Sounds like the, the poster children for the kingdom of God, right? Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first loved. You have left your first love. Now, uh, keep in mind, they're doing all this stuff up above this after they've left their first love. They're doing all these religious things, but their relationship with God is non-existent. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand, which is the whole point, shining the light. He says that light will not shine unless you repent. But this, you have, but this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he kind of puts a postscript in there and says, hey, but y'all are doing well. But you got to get this big thing fixed. Verse 7, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. 
Alrighty, Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. This is the most addressed church of the New Testament. You can see here on the screen. If you read Acts chapter 19 and 20, Paul spent three years on mission in Ephesus, more than any other city, more time than he spent anywhere else. He wrote the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus, which makes sense, right? Also, First and Second Timothy are written to Timothy when he's pastoring the church at Ephesus and training up future leaders. Also, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, same John, are written to the church at Ephesus because that's where John spent his later years. So there isn't a church in the New Testament that is addressed as much as the church at Ephesus. And there isn't a church in the New Testament that had as much star power part of its story. Paul, Timothy, Luke, Titus, the guys on the mission field in Acts, John, right? So no church in the New Testament had as much you know, apostolic influence than this one. It should be no surprise the church, the people at Ephesus were well saturated with the gospel. They were thoroughly educated and literate in the Bible and the Christian doctrine and Christian ethics. They were people who did good things. They worked hard. They drew a line between evil and what is right. They knew what was heretic and they knew what was truth. They were every Baptist church's dream, right? I mean, these people do everything you could ask them to do. But their passion became more about themselves than it was about God. They became more about their kingdom than about God's kingdom. How do we know this? Because Jesus says, you have left your first love. Yes, you're being obedient. Yes, you are on duty. But you're doing all this for the wrong reasons. They became more invested in their religion than their relationship with Jesus. And I think a good way to describe this church would be to call them the calloused church. Because they didn't realize that they had lost sight more importantly, connection to what mattered most. The church at Ephesus is Exhibit A. It's a cardinal warning for every evangelical church, deeply rooted and passionate about the Bible and about tradition and about duty and about truth. None of those things are bad. They're very great, actually. But Ephesus is a warning shot for every one of us that there is a very likely reality where we become more passionate about religion than we do our relationship with Jesus. It is possible that we become so entrenched in our religious obedience that we lose the heart of true fellowship and a true relationship with God. This is why, and this might help explain some of the things that we do and why I do the things that I do as a pastor. This is why as a church we make a big deal about explaining and fleshing out the why behind the what. As when God defines something as right or wrong. This is why we dive in and try to understand why God says such and such. Lest it all become just religious duty for us. There is a thread within Christianity that says, well, we don't need explanations. You, you don't. You might not. But somebody does. And also, those that say they don't need one, <laughs> the people before us that didn't need one were called Pharisees. And you know what happened to them? The Pharisees, and anybody like the Pharisees, becomes more passionate about what they do than why they do it. They become more passionate about how they do it than who they do it for. And this happens in churches again and again. This is the drift of religion. What God says is what God says. I'm not saying that isn't true. 
I'm not saying that he needs to explain himself, but he did explain himself. That's why Jesus came. And we need what Jesus revealed to make this real to us. Jesus came and put skin on the things of God. He made the things of God have personal weight. Jesus knew religion was just a show and would erode in time. He knew a relationship was what would bring about true change. The religion of the Jews had become a point of pride for them. They boasted on what they did right. They downplayed what they did not do. But they didn't know why they did them. And over time, they became full of arrogance. And the relationship God wanted with them was lost to religion. And Jesus is on record condemning them for this very thing. He did not want the church to fall for that same trap. So when we spend weeks at a time sometimes explaining why God says such and such is his will, it's because Jesus came to transform religion into a relationship. He came to add relational weight to what otherwise might become a religious ritual for you. For example, it's easy for things like church attendance and giving and morality to become so impersonal We become so religious about it. We miss the blessing. We get caught up trying to check boxes off a list. We miss what it's all about. We think it's about trying to stay good with God. We're good with God regardless of what we do or don't do. Jesus makes us good with God. And since we are good with God, we desire to do things and much more than just what we're told in scriptures. Listen, we should show up. We should give. We should do the right thing because God says so, but thankfully, Christianity is better than that. Christianity is better than because God says such and such. It's because God loves so much. That's Christianity. He wants a relationship with you, and he outlines in the scriptures what we should and shouldn't do out of the outpouring and overflow of his love, and he leads us in doing the right thing and avoiding the wrong things so that we might remain in step with him. The danger of ignoring your relationship with God and making it all about religion, well, I come on this day and I give this much and I do this and I don't do that. The danger is over time, religion will begin to give you loopholes. Religion will begin to say, we don't really have to do that. And you don't really have to do that. And and then over time, religion becomes very proud of what it does do and becomes very hush-hush about what it doesn't do. Isn't it true that every denomination of Christians has the things that we boast about because that's what makes us right? And every denomination also has things that we just don't talk about, right? And then we look over the aisle and say, well, they don't do this. And they look back at us and say, well, y'all don't do that. But then we say, well, we do this right and y'all do this wrong. And it's all this about what we do and what we don't do. But it's not about why we do it. Don't you understand? What we need is not religion. We need a relationship with Jesus. Because here Jesus, on the record, says to the church at Ephesus, you do so much and you know so much and you're all about what's right and you're all against what's wrong, but you do not have a relationship with me. And no matter how much you show up and no matter how much you give up and no matter how much you do or don't do, that's not what makes a difference. He says, guys, I want to get real with y'all. Y'all don't know me. And I don't know y'all. And that's a problem, isn't it? See, lifelong church attendees think they don't need reasons, but we're the ones. I'm putting myself in that camp. I've been here all my life. We're the ones that fall for religion. 
And we will, we will, we will become calloused if we don't continually make it about our relationship with Jesus. For those that are new or have never been to church, they're the ones that don't respond to religion. And that's not a bad thing because religion can't save them. Jesus Christ is the only hope that we have. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? How the Pharisee went up to the altar and said, God, thank you, I'm not like that guy. I do this and I, I always tithe and I always show up and I fast and I'm never you know, in the wrong places. And then the tax collector came up and just wouldn't even lift his head to heaven and he bowed his head and he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And who did Jesus say had a relationship with God? The one the Pharisee said had no chance. We have to keep our hearts focused on Jesus, what he has done for us, because apart from him, we, we would be lost, right? We bring nothing to the table. If we communicate anything else, our witness is toxic, which is why I think Jesus is so hard on these guys. Highlight, underline verse 5. What does he say? Remember from where you have fallen, repent, and go back to where you started. As in get back to that place where you were a sinner in need of a God to save you. And it wasn't about what you've done or how much you've given or how much you know. It was about you knowing that you could not get there on your own. And God mercifully saved you from that place. Get back there and stay there. Don't leave... Know all you can and give all you can and do all you can. But if you ever begin to put your justification in that stuff, you walk away from Jesus. What is verse 7's promise? He who overcomes this, I will give from the tree of life. You know what that means? That's a picture of finding true, abundant life. As in getting freed from religion and actually having a heartbeat relationship with God. And isn't that how Jesus defined salvation? This is eternal life, John 17, that they know you. Not that they know this about you or do this for you, but they have a relationship with you. That's what counts. It's all that counts. Before we go, I want to contrast Ephesus to the two churches that are mentioned later that we won't read, but a couple verses from. Pergamum and Tyatira, unlike Ephesus, they weren't so passionate about truth. And they became compromised and casual about their faith. Now, us religious types, we think, well, how could he put us in the same category as those people? We don't do, we, we, we don't, we're not compromised, we're not casual. These two churches were faithful in worship. I mean, when they came together, they lifted up Jesus' name louder than anybody else. They were bold on Sundays, but there was a disconnect with every other day. Look at two verses that highlights the compromises that these two churches made. Verse 14, Jesus says to Pergamum, I have a few things against you because you have... There those you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So all that Balaam stuff, Old Testament story, but the long story short is that it led them to compromising. Basically, well, as long as you show up on Sundays, you can do whatever you want to every other day of the week. That's how everybody else does it. You can do it too. You can 
Go the way of the world. Don't let church keep you from being accepted by the world. That's not how this works. And, and Jesus said, and he said, listen, you know, y'all are loud and y'all have lifted my name up and you never miss a Sunday, but there's a big disconnect in what you do Monday through Saturday. That's not right. That's not okay. Look at down at verse 20 as we look at Thyatira. Again, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, and again, that's an Old Testament reference, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And again, that's just a reference to an Old Testament story. Long story short is the people had accepted a idea that, well, as long as we show up and we lift up Jesus' name, we kind of can do what we want to. The sacrifice to idols is referencing to Greek and pagan idols. So, hey, we can continue to bow at the world's altar as long as we come to the church's altar on Sunday. Now, that, some of us religious types puff up and say, well, I know some people that are in that category. Hey, he just knocked us down a peg in chapter two the, earlier on, but we're, we've all been here, haven't we? We compromise because we know what the world says. I, they need this from me and you know, God's not going to find out. And if he does find out, I'll just show up and confess my sins and he'll be okay with it. Isn't that in the Bible? These two churches were compromised and casual about their faith. It was just lip service. It was just noise to them. If you caught them on Sundays, they were loud. They were zealous. They were passionate. They weren't loveless like the church at Ephesus. I mean, the people at Ephesus, when they came together, they barely sang. It was just all, oh, can we get out of here? We're here. Let's hear some truth. Let's leave. But these people, I mean, they sing and they're just passionate and they just go on and on and they testify and they're just filled with worship. But they're careless about how they uphold those truths and their lifestyles. Their services were great, but their service was loudly, lousy. If you observed them on Sundays, you would think, wow. If you observed them every other day, you would think, huh, not so good. Not that they were full of all sorts of sin, but they were just empty of God. They had weekend worship, but no day-to-day -day witness. They expressed love, but they lacked a lifestyle. They were compromised. This was a challenge that many early Christians faced that still face faithfulness to Christ puts us at odds with the world. Society, you know, puts pressure on us and we feel like we've got to, you know, to be accepted and succeed in the world, we've got to make some compromises and maybe nobody will be a, we have a problem with it. You know, I'll say this, our generation, we're not lacking in worship, but it's all confined to a time and place. The volume of our worship has increased, but the value of our witness and walks, they've decreased. Just like these two churches. In closing, I want to tell you a little short story about an Old Testament period where they had become very casual about God, very cavalier with God. And it deals with the conversation we've had around light and around both or around all three of these churches. First Samuel introduces us to this and says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And it plays on that and says, Eli, the priest, his eyesight had begun to grow dim. So no vision from God. Also, the priest couldn't see. So there's a connection, right, between the vision from God and the priest's ability to see. That's trying to get us to think big picture. He could not see who or what was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, but it was getting dim is the point. If you study 1 Samuel, you'll read about how corruption within the faith community had really caused a mess. And everyone could sort of turn their heads to it. Because in those days, they had the Ark of the Covenant. 
And the Ark of the Covenant was God's dwelling place. And no matter how good they were or weren't, the Ark of the Covenant always was there in the front of the temple or the front of the tabernacle. And the way things work, if you got yourself in a fix, if the nation got itself in a mess, they could roll the cart out and the cart would show up and God would show up and the enemies would scatter. And over time, people began to see God as a commodity. The Ark was just a means to a win when Israel needed it. But God began showing the nation that they desired, that he desired something more than noise. The nation faced a battle with the Philistines and they brought the ark out and it did not lead to a win. God let the nation lose that day. 30,000 people died in an embarrassing loss. Over the next couple of weeks, the ark was stolen by the Philistines and eventually it was abandoned in the woods because nobody wanted to touch it because it did not win for them. So why do we want it? Then the priestly family began to suffer. Eli died, his two sons died, and one of their grandchildren that was born after their fathers died was named Ichabod, which meant God's glory has left us. 20 years later, David comes along with a heart for God. He desired to bring the nation back around God and to renew a true heart for worship. He finds out the ark was left in the wilderness and he sends the Levites to retrieve it. A whole procession of worshipers is organized to bring the ark into town. There's a big parade. But as they begin to transfer it in a way contrary to God's prescription, their hearts were not right, and a man named Uzzah reached out to steady the cart, and he died. And the momentum of David's attempts to rally the nation around God quelled. 30,000 dead, the priest dead, his children dead, Uzzah dead. I mean, who's next? Months go by, the ark was left again in the wilderness and a man named Obed sort of looked after it and made a little garden around it and, and kind of lived there. People were afraid of God. They thought they could not approach him. Thousands were dead. The Philistines were overwhelming them. But word began to spread that the man looking after it, Obed, was experiencing blessings like never before. Obed was a man with a heart for God and he worshiped God and he lived for God and God was real to him. And David realizes it, realizes The ark's not the problem. God's not the problem. It's the heart of the people that's the problem. So David says, let's try this again. And he orders the Levites to research the Old Testament, how they should carry the ark. They go, prepare themselves, and they get ready for a true re-entrance to the city. Their hearts are right. And I want you to notice an amazing detail from that story in 2 Samuel. David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city with rejoicing. There was a big worship team there, but this is what made the difference. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David and his men sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And the way that's phrased, every six steps they took across an 11-mile journey, they stopped and they worshiped. Because you know what David's trying to ingrain in the nation's heart and mind that day? That our worship and our walks should be in step with each other. You know what I've observed about the church in my short time in ministry? There is a divide between those who cling to religion and lack a true relationship and those who rally and worship but lack a true walk with God. Religious people resent worshipful people. Worshipful people resent religious people when both sides are missing a true heart for Jesus. It hurts to say that, but that's what the book tells us. Jesus' word 
to both types of churches is the same. To those who have become calloused, he says repent. To those who have become compromised and casual, he says repent. Verse 5, verse 16, verse 22, to these three churches with different issues, he says repent. Different symptoms giving from the pressure of the world, the temptation of the enemy, but the same solution. So let me say this to somebody who's made this all about religion and rituals and tradition. There's a relationship with God that is so much better than what you've settled for. Religious people were so miserable. I've been there before. We're so miserable. We're always aggravated because somebody doesn't do as much as us. And we talk about what they should do and what we've done. And meanwhile, we're missing Jesus because he's who actually gives us peace and joy in life. And if you put on a front on Sundays and there's no follow through, no holiness, no lifestyle, don't you think there's more to it than that? Don't you think that Jesus' gift of salvation begs more than just an hour a week? Sure, Sunday should be great, but shouldn't we be carrying that same spirit every day of the week? Shouldn't we be stopping every six steps with a heart of praise? Shouldn't the other six days be as spiritual as the seventh? If you read the end of those three passages, Jesus promises these churches the tree of life, the hidden manna, the morning star. Now that first two speaks of the substance of salvation, the tree of life, the fruit, the hidden manna that God gave the Jews in the wilderness. This is a symbol of true life, possessing and, and, and growing in a true relationship. But that last one speaks of him guiding us and us waking up knowing that no matter what comes to us that day, Jesus is there with us and he's going to be with us and he's going to go with us. The morning star that brightens the, that brightens the dawn and shows us where we are to go. Church, I think all of us need repentance. As in, we need to turn from our ways. Because we have all become calloused and compromised and casual. Jesus can reignite the spark. He can reignite our passion if we come to him with a pure heart. David was inspired by that procession back into the city. And this is what he wrote in Psalm 24. Who may ascend to the holy hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol or nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. In response to this message from John, from Jesus to us, who today will be willing to say, I want more? I want what's real. Who would be willing to stop every six steps in the week to come and turn your worship into a walk? Turn your religion into a relationship? Because that's what Christianity is. And that's what Jesus can offer anybody and everybody. That's what he offers us. what his sacrifice did for us. He brought us into a relationship with God. And it gives us more than just an hour a week. It gives us a lifestyle. It gives us eternal life. That is God's invitation to us. That we would know him and walk with him. His love is the basis for this all. So in this invitation, would you consider where you're at? Are you compromised in your faith? Are you callous in your faith? Is it all about you? Is it all about this world? Both sides are missing the one thing, the one 
who offers us true salvation? That's Jesus. Let's all take a step back to him. Let's all take as many steps as it takes back to him this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this invitation. Lord, I pray that you would give us all a spirit of repentance. Lord, repentance is a word that makes some people kind of shut down, but repentance means to change. It means to change our mind. And if we change our mind, we might change our hearts, but it's the Holy Spirit of God that gives us that change. But Lord, you respond to our hearts. You respond to our pure hearts. When we say sincerely, God, I want to be different. I, I, I confess I'm callous. I confess it's become all about religion to me. It's all about what I do and what I've done and what I've brought to the table. God, I don't want to be stuck in myself. I want to find Jesus. I want a real relationship with God. Lord, if there's somebody here today that would say they want something that's real, would you give it to them today? Lord, if there's some that are here that they've become compromised and casual and Christianity to them has not really left the building with them in a long, for a long time, but today they want to take that step back to you and they want to turn their worship into a walk. They want to turn their worship into a lifestyle. Lord, would you help all of us as we all fit into these categories, these churches that had drifted away, would you help all of us come back to you? Lord, would you give us a collective spirit of repentance that we might collectively turn back and grow in our relationship with you. Lord, give us clean hands. Give us a pure heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.